Welcome everyone to this first in a new series of podcasts from Agilent Technologies. We're often asked, what makes Agilent different, special? Who are you as a company and what do you stand for? In these podcasts, we want to address who Agilent is, not just through talking about our products, which are by the way industry leading, but we want you to get to know us through our brand promise through our brand values and the themes that are close to our hearts and, most importantly, close to the hearts of Agilent's customers and collaborators. If you really want to know who Agilent is, those who develop and use our solutions every day are the best people to ask. They're doing some awesome work, work which delivers trusted answers to make the world a better place. Each podcast will have a central theme, And three experts will help us unpick that theme. They'll give us a new angle and maybe challenge the way we think about the world and the future. Series 1. Fighting Cancer. I'm Victoria Wadsworth Hansen, Global Director of Public Relations at Agilent. And in this episode, I set out to talk to some experts who are motivated by fighting cancer every day. In this first episode... We will hear how developments in research, drug development and management are creating new paradigms in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer and importantly ask what impact this could have for our future. It seemed right for me to start where any medical story begins, at the R&D stage. So I called Brian Dranker, Manager of Biology at Seahorse Products. Cancer's touched everyone's life in some way, shape or form but I feel like our understanding of cancer as a whole is quite basic. Researchers are working to understand this disease better, and a major focus in recent years has been cellular metabolism. Brian, as an expert in cellular bioenergetics, could you start maybe by providing us with an overview of how our cells consume energy to help us better understand cancer? So just like you need energy to run and jump and keep up with your kids, the cells in your body need energy for all the little chemical reactions that are constantly taking place uh, day in and day out. So cellular bioenergetics is simply the study of the pathways that make this energy and also the processes that consume it. And why is it important to be able to measure cell metabolism? So cell metabolism underpins um, not just normal function of cells, but also most human disease. So, for example, if you had a lung tumor, you would think of uh, you as a person having a lung tumor. Um, But in reality, that happens really at the cellular level. So a cancer often would start as a mutation in a single cell that would then grow and expand until you have an entire tumor. So the ability to look at the individual cell level gives you insight into the mechanism and the function of that individual cell and gives you the ability to then target therapy, in theory, to that particular deregulated function. And how much has cell bioenergetics been used in a research setting, for example? In the research setting, uh, the study of cellular bioenergetics has really um, had a renaissance in the last 10 to 15 years, I would say. Um, That's really because we've learned lots more about not just studying cellular function from a bioenergetic perspective. We're actually now using it to control cell fate and function in some way. So why is the knowledge that we gain from studying the cell important when we're developing cancer therapies? 
By studying, by studying these diseases at the individual cellular level, you gain an insight into the mechanism and the function of those individual cells that you wouldn't get if you're studying the entire um, tumor, for example. Uh, I do think both are relevant, both are important, but the ability to, to get deeper into the mechanism and really understand it so that we could eventually create therapies around what we discover is particularly relevant in our current research climate. Brian, you've been a researcher for many years. What are the most exciting advances that have taken place? So essentially every key metabolic pathway in the cell um, has been identified to play some role in cancer. That's really happened over the last five to 10 years. Um, and so that's pretty exciting. Um, there's not a lot of translation to the clinic yet, uh, but there are a number of small biotech companies and startup companies that each have one of these major pathways as their key focus. So finding ways to create druggable targets out of those, I think, is really the future for that particular area of research. The need now is to move beyond the basic study of these pathways and get to uh, the point where we can use them to control cell fate and function. And so to control disease and treat disease. Exactly. So then looking into your crystal ball, what are you most excited about? And do you have any predictions for how this work you're doing in understanding how cells work is going to have an impact on cancer therapies in the future? Yeah, so a huge amount of the current focus is on T-cells for immunotherapy. Really soon, I think we'll start to see other cell types being used, either used therapeutically or being targeted therapeutically. Natural killer cells are a good example of this. There's an entire additional part um, around fuel usage and how cells are getting um, what they need to do all this growth and division that we discussed. Um, I think um, there will be more research going into that particular area understanding how we can use those as a new tool set to control cell fate and function as well. I think the more we understand disease, the more we'll be able to create tools that will allow us to control disease in some particular way. So all in all, would you say that the future looks hopeful for cancer treatment? Yeah, I think the future is definitely hopeful. I really felt that Brian's optimism was encouraging, and it also made me want to find out more about what Agilent had been working on, further along the drug development pathway. So next, I called Hans Christian Peterson, the Director of Scientific Affairs in the Diagnostic and Genomics Division at Agilent, to talk to him about Agilent's pioneering work in diagnostics for targeted therapeutics. Hans Christian, let's start by discussing the focus of Agilent's research in respect to lung cancer. But first, before we do that, I wanted to say that when you look at lung cancer, one thing really stands out, and that's the disease's notoriously low survival prospects. Yeah, you're right. It, it is one of the most common cancers and one of the most deadly cancers in the world with responsible for 1.6 million people each year. And um, survival rates will vary across the world where in, in the U.S. after, uh, if you're diagnosed with lung cancer, after five years, only 15% of, of the patients are alive, whereas in U.K., the same number in, in the study was 9%. And over the last 20 years, of course, there have been significant developments in both diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer. Perhaps you could touch on a few of the developments you've witnessed in your career and maybe explain their significance. Number one is the understanding of, of lung cancer has really progressed in the last 20 years where through new tools such as uh, next generation sequencing, we're able to now completely sequence a tumour and understand all the different mutations that that tumor has. And that allows us that, number two, new treatment opportunities where we can now 
target the different mutations specifically for each uh, patient's tumor. We've seen dramatic responses in patients with those target agents. And number three um, is the, the kind of advent of immunotherapy, which is a promising new area in, in treatment of cancers, and certainly also in, in lung cancer, where patients have also seen dramatic responses. That's interesting. Harnessing our own immune system to fight cancer. What's Agilent doing in that whole area? Agilent is, is both working to develop exciting new tools for cancer diagnostics, but also through our collaborations with pharma, we're enabling new discoveries of different protein and, and biomarkers that can lead to new treatment options, but also, also a better diagnosis in the future. And through our companion diagnostic development, we're enabling new tests that can then go in and individualize treatment for cancer patients. Precision medicine involves trying to find out as much as possible we can about a patient's tumor to allow us to find out the best possible way of treating that, that patient. And so how does companion diagnostics play into that? Companion diagnostics is one of the tools that are being used to enable precision medicine by measuring a biomarker in, in the tumor then, so that then will allow us to say if a patient should get uh, one type of treatment or another. So could you give me an example of a biomarker? Yeah, one of the biomarkers that Agilent is particularly interested in is the pd one biomarker that is used to find out if, if patients with different types of cancers are eligible for what's called checkpoint inhibitors, which are our new form of immunotherapy. So I guess it's because all cancers are different, right? So some of these patients will have cancers of express pdl one and some won't? We see that some cancers have expression of pdl one uh, and in lung cancer, for example, uh, then it's about 50 to 60% of the patients have some expression of, of pdl one and about 25% of them have high expression of PD-L1 in, in their tumor. And that means something in terms of the likelihood that they will benefit from, from these checkpoint inhibitors. It's allowed us to find out which patients are most likely to respond to treatment. So it's not just about the number of options available to patients, it's also about giving them the right option. Yes, if you have cancers, you, what you want to do is try and, and uh, diagnose it as accurately as you can, and then offer the best possible treatment options um, in the first instance. And what companion diagnostics do, and, and these diagnostic tests in general do, is that they really help patients pinpointing what is the best treatment options that they can get up front, and then get them on that treatment. Having started with research and moved through drug development, it was now time for me to talk about innovation from a clinical perspective. This led me to Dr. Carlos Cordoncado, a physician scientist known widely for his research in experimental pathology and molecular oncology at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Hi, and thank you for joining us today. I'm interested in the patient's experience. Could you tell me, is increased access to information for patients always a good thing? It's true that too much information sometimes doesn't help because one, one thing is to have plenty of data and the other is to have knowledge. 
Uh, but if we can translate this data and this information into knowledge and, and guide them of how to manage this knowledge so they can help us in better guiding and managing their disease, then it's a perfect scenario because we are part of one team. And have you observed similar changes in the patient's spheres of influence too, such as in their families, for example? I remember the, the days in which uh, cancer was a, a name that you couldn't even mention to the family, friends, or to parts of the family, or even the, 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 the patient. Well, that didn't help. So being able to discuss openly with all of the ethics, all of the integrity, uh, and, and requesting who else need to be involved, not just randomly, uh, opens uh, an entire new field in which family support, friends support, and understanding of that new journey can be taken in a very different context. How do you think the rise of multidisciplinary teams and the emphasis on the collaboration between the diagnosing physician and the treating physician has changed the way the disease is managed? Today it's very rare the case that it's not discussed around the table with all of the individuals involved from the surgeons to the radiation therapies to the chemotherapies to the medical oncologists, the geneticists, the pathologists, the radiologists. And in many situations we are combining different treatment modalities. And how does this play out from a practical perspective? Are these disease management teams run as tumour boards or how do they actually work? Tumour boards and the combination of the different thoughts from multiple individuals in disease management teams uh, has become more difficult to understand and to put it together. Uh, so one of the developments that we and others are doing is to use these disease management teams and these you know, 360 view of the patient to produce what we call integrated reports, but also at the same time to produce new dashboards in which we can bring a lot of data and through the development of algorithms and new looks using artificial intelligence to guide us, you know, from machine learning to deep learning, we are turning data into knowledge and we are using this knowledge to better guide our decision making. How do you manage that within your hospital? We have weekly conferences that we go over all of the patients that we see. And we have actually a very special weekly conference that deals mostly with immuno-oncology. And we have taken long as one of our main critical examples of proving that the team can work well together and that patients can do better when the team is very concentrating in a disease. We look at all of the data of the patient from the clinical point of view, from the opportunities. Uh, most of the times already with the PDL, PDL1 analysis done on a previous biopsy to select the patient. And then we put that patient on the trial. This paints a really positive picture about how different medical professions have moved to a more collaborative model in the interest of ensuring the best possible outcome for the patient. I'd love to finish off by just asking you how you think your role as a pathologist has changed. For us, making sure that you are giving the most updated you know, technology and the most concrete information to guide the management of that patient, it's very critical. It's our most important role that now it's extended not only to the diagnosis, but to the follow-up of the patient and make sure that that journey is still the most appropriate one. And if a new mutation, if a new development happens, to know where you need to turn into a new street because it would be the best route to take at that point. Thanks for your time today.
after speaking to so many inspiring dedicated individuals about the work that Agilent and its customers are doing in lung cancer research, drug development and management, it's really hard not to feel hopeful about what this might mean for the future. So that was all for this time. Thanks again for joining me for the first episode in this new podcast series. We look forward to bringing more updates on the work that Agilent and our partners are doing. More from us next time. Thank you.